Well, I'm going to start by reading a passage, and I just want you to listen to the passage as I read it, and then, and then we'll jump in. In Genesis 18, this is not going to be on the screen, so you can just listen. In Genesis 18, the Lord appeared by him to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant." So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. You guys remember the, um, the game stock, I mean, the game spot stock event that happened a couple of years ago. You guys remember this? Um, as, a, as September 2019, GameStop was worth $7.65 a share, um, as the graph shows. And then, as of September, as of January of 2021, it was worth $86.88 a share. Um, this was a massive uh, increase in the percentage of how much it, would, it had grown over time. And it was a failing company, and yet its stock value was climbing, climbing, climbing. That's its highest closing cost. This shows the rates even during the days. Um, <clears throat> now it's worth just under $20 a share. Um, again, which is probably much more appropriate um, for the type of company it is. It was a social movement. Thousands risked money um, on not much more than a joke, a dare. Um, people made fortunes and people lost fortunes. Um, there are some people some of those people are in this room who would sure like to understand that phenomenon well enough to know how to get on board at the right time when that kind of thing happens and when to get off, how to make it work for them, right? Some of you are old enough to remember Enron, who magically made $78 billion disappear from uh, the national economy. Uh, Bernie Madoff, who someone said first service, it's billion. I may have jotted down the wrong letter. $68 billion um, vanish as well of people's investment money. That's a lot of money. Um, finally, isn't it great that today, in today's world, the experts know better? Isn't it great that we don't fall for that kind of trick anymore? That we no longer buy into that kind of stuff? Um, some of you are chuckling because you know um, that this last month, uh, now uh, uh, two new um, acronyms have come into the lexicon that will always be connected to names like Enron and Madoff, and that's SBF and FTX. Here's FBF. Here, here's, here is SBF. This is whose face you should keep with that from, from now on, right? They entered in this list. Thousands of people invested billions of dollars that will likely never be seen again by giving it to this guy. Now, I don't have anything about, you know, hair. But I don't know that a guy this age, this style, this, it was shocking to me to see that all of these people had given their money to somebody who had no experience, no background, no, no reason to think this is someone who knew how to handle money properly, but he was the new, he was the new magic wonder kid who was going to come in and he had saved the day for everybody and he was breaking all the rules and making it work. And it turns out he was breaking all the rules. 
that that's exactly what he was doing, right? Why is it that when our peer group come to us, or those who we call celebrities, our sports stars, and tell us that we should invest like they invest, we reach for our wallets? What is that? Why would we give this man control over billions of dollars? How about in the last few years? We've seen several protests in the last few years. Now, this isn't the first. If you know American history well, you know that protests like this violent um, uprising protests have happened um, several times in American history. In fact, these weren't even the worst ones um, in American history that we faced. But in the recent years, over $2 billion in damage is done by these protests. At least a couple of dozen people died. Thousands and thousands were arrested and thousands more injured during this time. Again, a social movement, and it was certainly a complex one. There's no easy answers. But how do you get people to risk their lives for a cause, to risk imprisonment, to break laws? What is it about people that we do these things? I remember when I was 19, and I was at a Rich Mullins concert, and Rich Mullins, who was one of my celebrities, would have been a celebrity to me, Rich Mullins said, you know what you need to be doing? You need to be taking care of a child that lives in another part of the world, and it'll just call you, cost you a few dollars every month to take on this Compassion International child and to begin to support them. At that time, 40,000 children a day were starving to death around the world. 40,000 children a day. Since I was 19, the, the, the world population has more than doubled from what it was then. And yet, the number of children starving to death every day has gone down to about 10,000. How is that possible? Well, Compassion International now feeds, educates, and supports 2.2 million children every single day. Our church supports Compassion International. We've taken on hundreds, if not now, into the thousands of Compassion children that our church takes care of. I encourage you to do the same. World Vision, another Christian organization, supports 3.2 million children every day to feed them and take care of them every single day. That's another social movement. Um, Glenn James was a homeless man who turned in a lost bag that he found with $40,000 in cash in it. Homeless man finds a bag with $40,000 in cash, and what does he do? He turns it in to look for the rightful owner. Immediately, somebody set up a GoFundMe to support him and appreciation for his honesty. So far, it has raised $150,000 to support this man. Total strangers giving to support a homeless man who is honest. Sean Pesci, who was a wounded veteran who was shot over a dozen times in combat, um, needed to make his house wheelchair accessible when he came home. So they set a goal on GoFundMe of $20,000, and of that $20,000, they raised $51,000 in a month. Why do thousands of people give up their limited dollars to support millions of children or special needs like this? What is that about us? By the way, on the same site, a woman with a forehead tattoo, I think we, we have her picture, um, also asked to raise some money to have her remove the forehead tattoo because it turned out it had limited her employment prospects. <laughs> Who knew? She raised $1,000 to get the tattoo removed. I don't know if she has or not, but most surprisingly, several people on, on that site have declared themselves transfinancial, meaning a rich person trapped in a poor person's body. <laughs> and they've asked for help <clears throat> for their identity issues that they're dealing with. Now, some of the memes that came out indicated that this one, the guy who started it, had raised almost $500,000. But it turns out that's probably just the meme. When I looked him up on the actual GoFundMe site, it turns out he's actually raised $97. <laughs> and I want to know 
who gave $97 to this guy? Like, who, who did that? Anyway, I think this may offer us some insight. Now, I want to take a second and comment, because we're teaching through our pillars for three Sundays. If you're a guest here, this is not normal for us. Normal for us in January, we do take a couple of Sundays and we focus in on some of our identity statements, our purpose statements, our mottos, our mission statements, our, uh, our pillars, that kind of thing. Um, it turns out we've got two things coming side by side. Normally, if you come on a Sunday morning and you can go back and look at all the sermons going back, you know, the five or six years um, that we've been South Spring and the 10 years, 20 years before that, is that we teach exegetically straight through a passage. We're right now, we're in the middle, actually, in the first third of 1 Samuel. And normally what I would get up is I would read first a second of, section of 1 Samuel, and then we'd unpack it word for word, line for line, and that's normally how we do it. But at the beginning of the year, I always want to take a second and remind us who we are and how we do what God has called us to do through these different statements. Now, Scripture's going to show up all through this, but you have to be patient a little bit. But I just want you to know, if you're a guest here and you're like, this, this seemed like less of that type of a thing, well, that's, this is abnormal. And it's going to stay abnormal, by the way, for about six more weeks. Um, we're going to do that. We're going to do a series of two weeks on prayer, and then we're going to move into capital campaign, which is super fun. You may hear that and go like, oh my gosh, like we do them fun around here. You'll see. This is a, uh, but I want to offer this insight. This insight, a study at the University of Virginia by Dr. James Cohn offers, I think, some interesting insights into this process, what's happening here. So I want you to imagine this. First, they took several couples and they gave them a series of tests to evaluate how strong their marriage was. So everything from, from not strong or, or, or barely attached all the way to what, he, what they called like these super strong marriages. There were a handful that were, that were super strong. Then they took the wife and they told the wife, we're going to put you in an MRI machine to do brain testing, do some brain testing on the MRI machine. Now, at that point, some of you would already be spiking, right? How many of you have done the MRI machine and it's just almost too much for you? Like anybody they got, like they may have to sedate you just to put you in those things, right? So, so I, I am not an anxiety, an anxious, anxiety is not one of my things. I got plenty of anxiety is not typically one of them. I've only done one MRI machine one time and I slept through the entire process. Like I, you, you'd lay me down and you'd make it dark and I fall asleep. That's what I do. In fact, I don't even always have to do those, those two. I fall, on the sleep, I fall asleep on the way to Walmart if Ginger's driving. So um, I try not to do it when I'm the one driving. The, um, uh, so you get the MRI machine. But imagine, so they start, and they let you know, by the way, also this isn't normal, a normal testing. In addition to the MRI machine, we're also, you're also going to be getting mild electric shocks um, while you're experiencing this. Now, not surprisingly, when you scan someone's brain who's an M in an MRI machine and you tell them they're going to get electric shocks, all of the anxiety triggers in their brain get set off. No big surprise there, right? So here's the study. The study then was, they said first, to some of them, that's it. That's the whole study. We see where the baseline is. Then some of them, they said, well, we have an experimenter who is here. You don't know him, but he, will, he offers to hold your hand during the process. Now, for most people, if they accepted the hand of the total stranger, the experimenter, their anxiety symptoms dropped off by 15 to 20%. A total stranger holding their hand in a high-stress situation reduced their anxiety. That teaches you something. But here was even most, more powerful. The, the marriages, and it was very predictable based on how strong the marriage was. The higher strength of the marriage, if they brought the spouse in, if the husband was brought in, and they said, your husband's come in, he, he, would you like for him to hold your hand? 
The higher the strength of the marriage, the more the woman's anxiety symptoms dropped. And in super strong marriages, her anxiety dropped back to baseline. She's in an MRI machine going to get electric shocks, and she has essentially no symptoms of anxiety because of this. I think this teaches us some of what's going on here. We are desperate for connection. We long for it, the sense of safety, a place to belong. We want to be a we that means something. Now, as a child of the 80s, there's a beautiful symbol of this, and I used to watch this show with my dad sometimes, and every time we, he, would have the, he would say the same thing. So we, we would turn on Cheers, and when we turn on Cheers, you can show the, the, the symbol. So those who don't know Cheers, I totally understand. We are, we are on Facebook Live. First service, um, which by the way is not this crowded. So if you want a less crowded experience and live music, not well we get live music on both of them, we, but you're singing, but I guess not live music, recorded music live, that we played the, the soundtrack. We can't do that in here because Facebook Live will kick us off if we do that. So we're going to have to help, help that out. First, I just want to show you what the words to the, the lyrics to this song were. So if we could throw up the first lyrics. You guys remember this? Right? Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? And then this is the second one, which no one knows because it wasn't part of the TV show. All those nights when you've got no lights, your check is in the mail, and your little angel hung the cat up by its tail, and your third fiancé didn't show... It gets, that's pretty dark. It, I mean, it, gets, it takes a dark turn. But this part, I think we can pull off. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. You're good. And they're always glad you came. Boom, boom. You want to be where you can see. Our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Yeah. Okay, so if you're from the 80s, here's what my dad would say. Every single opening of that was, why is that a bar, not a church? Why isn't this a TV show about a church? This song is perfect theme song for a church. We all want to experience something where we go, is there anyone who cares what my week was like? Is there anyone who knows? And by the way, of course, you know, a thousand people aren't going to, you know, a thousand people, most of them are going to be the normal exchanges. We'll talk about in a second the good morning, it's good to see you, proud to worship with you, we're so glad you're here. But all of us need 10, 20, 30, 100 people maybe who can look at us and know that when we say we're fine, they know we're not. We need that. And those are people we need to be interacting with because making your way in the world takes everything you've got. Gary Portney, when he wrote these, he wrote several versions. You can actually go online and see some of the earlier versions that he wrote um, for Cheers, and they're all terrible. I mean, they're, they're really just awful. And, and yet this one hit, and you can see why. When you read through that first lyric, that first lyric and that first chorus, you think, yeah, I get that. Everybody wants that. It's actually part of the, we talked about, I, I wrestle with um, the fact that when Paul comes up and and, and says good morning, and, and kind of a certain percentage of us shout out good morning, Paul, back to him. Like, my brain it connects to Norm, right? That's where my brain goes. Those of you who are my generation, like, you're like, Norm! I could say, that to me is comforting. I, I hope it's not weird to the guests, or, or, or maybe if it is weird, it's the right kind of weird, to our guests that, that we shout out the guy's name who's going to do the meet and greet and announcements and that kind of stuff. Um, it doesn't mean that you're not part of the group. It just means we want everybody to be part of that same group. I don't know. I've wrestled with that one. 
The power of belonging is so powerful, knowing there's someplace we belong, the power of attachment is one of the core powers for human beings. It's, it's so vital to us. Um, this, again, like I said, this isn't a normal Sunday as we go through these pillars. The way you communicate attachment, the way you communicate where you belong is here, is hospitality. And uh, listen, I want to comment and say, it's kind of funny, I had somebody come up after the first service and say, uh, get, tell me their story of visiting several churches four or five times each and, and, and just never feeling a sense of belonging or connection. And then talking to somebody and going like, well, you need to check out South Spring. And they came here and from the first Sunday said, we've never experienced the sense of welcome that we got. Like we got greeted five or six times before we even made it to the first door. She goes, so, so you, you need to know the church is doing it. Well, I think she was kind of defending you guys from me, I think, to be perfectly honest. And I was like, I, I know that. That's all of that. And that's why we go back over it every year is the reminder of how important this stuff is, how important fear of being left out, the fear of missing out, FOMO. It's something much deeper than that in us, deeper and much more primal. I want you to ask yourself, how important is it for that baby to be welcomed into their pack, to be welcomed into that family? And the answer is it's life or death. And at some point in our development, even though we don't remember it, we experience that. We experience that feeling of life or death. And of course, like I said, we don't remember it. When we brought Michael home from the NICU, my, my, one of my adopted kids, Michael, when we brought him home from the NICU, um, he had not attached. He had no connection. Um, he had different nurses feeding him for two months. He'd been in the NICU. And he could not suck, swallow, and breathe simultaneously, which is necessary for a child to survive. And the pediatrician, um, Rick Rogers, told us that's because he's in um, self-destruction mode. He's trying to die. Um, a child who does not have an attachment, who does not have that connection from birth knows, I don't need to be here. I'm just a drain on resources. They intuitively don't, they cannot, their body won't process things properly. And he said, you're, and here's the hard part. Not only are you going to have to feed him every two hours, not only is it going to take about an hour to feed him because a child who can't suck, swallow and breathe has to suck three times, be held up, burped till they breathe. And then again, you have to do that over and over again, but Chris can't help. It can be only one of one of you has to do it. And it has to be just the one of you until he attaches and it'll take about 20 days. And sure enough, on the 21st day, he suddenly started to suck, swallow and breathe. Um, because his body had decided I belong. I have a family. I have a place where I'm supposed to be. That's how deeply primal that is to all of us, that we have that sense. We want that. We need that. It's, it's such a deep part. So how long does this continue? Think about, as you go through the teen years, all the insecurities that come with, what pack am I part of? What team am I part of? Who do I belong with? What is the clique that I, I get to fit into? Like, all these, and by the way, that's going to eventually turn into who's going to join with me and then we're going to create our own pack, our own herd, our own family, right? How, who's going to, and the level of insecurity, there's a, uh, I teach a government speech class right now and several of the students, we debriefed, they had to deliver their first speeches recently and we, we talked about, we debriefed, why is this so hard? Why is this so scary to get up in front of people and deliver a talk? It's because they may reject you if you do badly at this and they don't want to have anything to do with you moving forward. And so we talked about, is it better or worse that it's your friends who you're giving this speech to? Well, it's worse than that they're probably going to tease you if you do badly. But the truth is, fundamentally, it's better because 
they're not going to reject you no matter how badly you do. But what if it's a group of strangers? What if, this is super hard and super deeply wired in us. How will we be accepted? How do we maximize the benefits of safety and minimize the risk to ourselves, which we're all working towards? Like zebras hiding in the herd or like, like wolves hunting in a pack. How do we maximize that? Well, Solomon picked up on some of these pragmatic prospects. Um, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon is going to give one of the few positive things he says in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, I think Ecclesiastes should be read through the lens of a dark, hurt, broken old man who realizes he's ruined the last few decades of his life um, in an experiment meant to find him pleasure, and all it did was he discovered that everything on this, under the sun fails us, and only the things above the sun offers anything of any real value. In the midst of that, the only po- one of the few positive things he says, we find in Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 9, two are better than one. For they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no other to not, not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. This is significant. Now, again, it's not very poetic. It's not very pretty. This isn't about the joys of friendship. This is about the raw pragmatism of having someone on your side. Even at that level, it matters. Humans are social creatures. We're created in such a way. And it wasn't Solomon who spotted it first. It was the creator himself. In Genesis 2.15, we read this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So first God, cre- God communicates a problem. There's a problem. It's not good. And this is not just this man or just males. This is mankind is not meant to be alone. It's not good for human beings to be alone. That's not a healthy place to be long term. So he's going to offer some solutions. The first one he's going to offer is marriage. The, the, the most basic uh, unit of this is someone who's on my side. This is someone who will hold my hand in the MRI machine. This is someone who stands with me and fights for me and they will die for me. And if they have to, they'll kill for me. That is what attachment is all about. So God created that. Over time, we now have discipleship, friendship. We have brothers and sisters. We have the the extension of the family that comes from this. We have the church. These are all expressions of God's solution to our human problem of it's not good that we're alone. He spotted it. Jesus sent his disciples out in twos when he sent them with nothing else. The phrase one another is used in the New Testament passages dozens of times. It's, it's who we are. It's vital. A few years ago, if you want to go back and listen to it, and it just, I wanted to do a study on what exactly is the church actually. And, and it was, came down to three words. We are his. And, and to uncover what does we mean, that's a hospitality question. The question of what is we? Who, who are we? We look for others to guide us when we're looking for sensible behavior. Some of you, this may, you, this may be your first time, first day ever to visit this church. 
what you do when you come into a weird setting like this is you, is you look around and kind of see how other people are doing it, right? Nowadays we go online and we stalk them first to see what does normal look like there? How do I not look too abnormal, right? I want to be <clears throat> at least sort of normal. And so you show up and then you look around for what psychologists call sensible behavior. What are other people kind of doing and how do I kind of mirror that, right? Now, imagine how weird it is. Some of you, you may not be normal. Church may not be normal to you. If this is your first time to, especially to ever be in a church, man, the level of weirdness just goes way up, doesn't it? We do a lot of weird. We actually had a similar sermon series probably eight years ago called Weird Things Christians Do. And a lot of them are on Sunday morning. There's a lot of the stuff that's weird if you've never experienced it. I want you to imagine some of you, I've done this, um, is that you just go show up at the mosque for one of their services sometime, Right? Man, you talk about, it's like, uh, am I, do I stand? Do I, what, what happens if I do this wrong? Like, what's the, do I, what am I supposed to? And you're, you're doing that the whole time. If you're, if you're new to the church, you're doing that. You're figuring out, when are they standing? Why are they sitting now? Oh, they're singing. That's weird. Like, it's, a, it's all, the, all those different things. Here's what we're supposed to try to create as a hospitable church. Every guest who wants a friend can find one. Everybody who wants to make a friend in this population can find one. If you're now, it may not mean that it drops in your lap. You may have to be a friend in order to make friends. But everyone who wants a friend can find one. You belong here. Yes, that may involve real relationships that can be hard. That may translate into really hard conversations over time that are supposed to make us grow, but can be difficult. Real challenges and real truth that we may not like. But the pattern of Christianity when it comes to this is that everyone is invited and those who come are welcome. Okay? It's two steps. Step one is everyone is invited. Say that with me. Everyone is invited. Number two, those who come are welcome. Ready? Those who come are welcome. That's, this is huge. <clears throat> we see Jesus play this out in Matthew chapter 22 in one of his many parables about this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he went to his other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. In the end, he goes everywhere. They go out into the streets and they get to drag homeless people out of the, out of the, the sidewalks and bring them in and say, everyone is invited. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's not just like a narrow one. It's like a, a, an invitation that may have felt narrow at the beginning, but it's broadened now out to everybody. And by the way, not everyone's going to come, but those who do are welcome. How do we create this? How do we let people know, come to the feast of Christ and his church? Come today. At South Spring, the passage I read at the beginning is the model that we've begun to develop. So I'm going to start there. Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him... <clears throat> by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent, uh, as the Lord appeared to him, him being Abraham, by the way, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of food that you may refresh yourself, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Now, how strange is this, right? One, make sure you picture Abraham correctly. If you in any way picture Abraham as pathetic, 
Some pathetic little guy sitting by his tent. Yeah, wash that away. This is a man of such great power. And, and he is a, he's a, leads a nomadic family, a, a nomadic tribe. They're so powerful that, that when they go near places, near even, even world powers like Egypt and Assyria, the kings of those places are kind of like, ah, uh, don't get too close. They're made nervous by Abraham and his entourage. When five kings kidnap some of Abraham's family and steal a bunch of stuff, five kings and their kingdoms and run away, Abraham, with no one else's help, just gathers up his people, chases them down, utterly defeats them, and takes everything back. So again, picture a massive city of tents. And this is the Lord of these tent cities. This is the Lord of this. He's like a Bedouin warlord, what you would picture from an old Arab Western type, uh, type movie, right? And he's sitting there and, and enjoying the coolness of the day. And three total strangers come walking by. And he immediately steps into the stage that we're going to call the greeting. The first step of hospitality is the greeting. This is real and it's very important. It lets the person know you want them where you are. That you're proud to, that they have come to where you are. Listen, this is the, hospitality is the lowest hanging fruit of ministry. It should be the easiest thing we do in ministry. Everything else just gets harder. This is, we outnumber guests typically 10 to 1 on Sunday morning. Members do. And so we need to be Making, I mean, they should be greeted a minimum of, say, 10 times. I mean, it would, be, it, would be, it would be strange to be so much outnumbered to be in a strange environment, and the people for whom it's normal don't do anything to make you feel welcome. That would be so odd to do that. We would consider that terrible under most circumstances. It's real and it's important. Everything is meant to communicate safety. That's actually the key. A lot of human interaction with this is safety. Some of you may know why shaking hands is what it is. Where did it come from? It's a, it's a medieval picture, and it, other cultures do it as well in different ways, but it still communicates the same kind of thing. What does this communicate fundamentally? There's nothing in my hand. I have no weapon in my hand. That's what that's about. When you go up to somebody and do this, that's what you're saying. Look, I'm not dangerous. And then they do the same thing. You clasp hands. Good, we're in agreement. We're okay here. No one's drawing any blades. We're good. A few years ago, what happened was you did this, and people are like, uh, I don't see anything, but there could be a bunch of little invisible things on your hand that are going to get me killed, right? So we start doing this, right? It's if this doesn't communicate safety, you got to change it. So we start fist bumping, or someone this morning, who I assume has a cold or something, was like, let's do the elbow, right? Like, absolutely. Because we're communicating, the whole purpose is to communicate safety. I'm not a threat to you. You're not, you're not a threat to me. That's what greeting is all about. But it's beyond that. Greeting is also, when we're doing it in a hospitality section, is meant to communicate intentionality. I am pursuing you. I'm coming to you. Abraham runs to them, falls on his face, right, to greet them. So this picture, I want to create this picture for you in a cool way. So for years, I grew up catching a football incorrectly, wrongly. Like that. <laughs> that's why that's a bad idea, right? I let it come all the way to me, right? I'm, I'm passive. I just sit there until it, until it comes to me, and I just absorb it when it lands. Now, that's because I was raised by a guy who played baseball his whole life. And the rules with baseball are you, you get in front of it, and you, right, you do like that. So that's not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is to reach out and pull it out of the air, right? 
You're supposed to reach out and get it and grab hold of it, right? That's the idea. Uh, I'm not falling for it, Jacob. All right, so, uh, so that's, a, like, that's what you're supposed to do is you reach out and grab it, right? You make this little triangle shape with your hands, this little diamond shape with your hands, and then you pull it out of the air. I was in college before I found out that's what that was for, that you're supposed to do it that way. I didn't know that, and so I was doing it incorrectly. Listen, when we greet people at South Spring, we're going out to them. We're not waiting for them. That's terrible hospitality. That's barely tolerance. That's a, it's like the picture what we, what we often right here call the Baptist 360, right? A lot of Baptist churches, they do the meet and greet time, and it looks like this. It's the Baptist 360. I'm okay. I'm willing to greet you if I have to, but I'm not going to make any effort, right? If you happen to be close to me, I guess I'll shake your hand. Fine, right? It needs to be humble, Though from a position of power, all the power, especially if he doesn't know that that's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, which I don't know that he did, it, all the power, he goes out and humbles himself before him, grateful with his face, with your face and your words, and personal. This person may be a best friend later on. So, so actually engaging with him. I know we can't always have long conversations with everybody. That's, that's normal and it's how part of how it works. However, we do want to be intentional, personal, and authentic with that. It's the greatest power. When you, if as members of the church, we should be truly humbled and honored that someone decided to come and, and worship with us this morning. I, I am. I'm, I'm surprised and humbled week after week. Um, so that's step one, greeting. Now, step two is tending. One, we're being gentle with that, right? We don't know what they're bringing with them unless they have to be one of your 20 or, or 50 people who you know well enough to know. Hey man, how's this going? Hey, what's the story with this? What's What's going on with your parents? What's going on with your kids? What's, that you actually know. That's vital. But here's the deal. Everyone's bringing something. And so even with the people we don't know, we want to be gentle. We want to be kind and comforting. And then we want to be generous. Listen to this. Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and young. And Notice he's running everywhere. It's really amazing. And gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Um, he's an old man, by the way. Then he took curds and milk and the calf he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. He stood there in case they needed anything else. How generous. Some of you have heard me talk through this. This was my favorite when I started unpacking this the very first time when I was blown away by this. This is Middle Eastern hospitality. It is the mindset. We, um, I won't go into detail here, but we talked about um, in the first service, the way when you go, I love the, the Palestinian Muslim section of Jerusalem. I love going in there where you barter and bargain for every penny. Like they, they have something and the first price they give you is super expensive. I had a guy tell me between uh, services that at least where he served, which was in, the, in Asia, he said, if you, if you accept the first price, you, like you've haunted them for a day. They're going to spend 24 hours realizing they could have asked you for more. And so like, it's a, you always, you always bargain just to comfort them. You bargain with them even. And so I love going at, some people hate it. It drives their anxiety out the roof to go bargain with them. I enjoy doing it. And, and here, part of why is I have stood for, for a significant period of time, arguing and bartering and bargaining with this person, negotiating. And we finally come to agreed upon price. And listen, he has given every dramatic 
tool that he has. He has told me that I am starving his children and that I'm, I'm going to burn his house and that it's a, he's, he's ru I'm ruining his life forever and all this stuff. And, and then in the end, he's finally like, fine. And he acts all hurt. I mean, I've had him get tears in their eyes. Like it's a, they act all, and then, and then you exchange the money for the thing. And then the minute you exchange the money for the goods, you're best friends again. And the, and the more aggressive the fighting was, the more likely they are to come give you a hug and a kiss on the cheek and like, you bring your friends anytime. I mean, they just, they it's, there's something they seem to, I hope they enjoy that, but they seem to really enjoy that, that interaction they do with each other, in, even within their family. It's, it's, it's cool to see, but here's the thing I want you to hear. That same guy who would bargain for 30 minutes over 50 cents if I did it with him, um, on, on some piece of thing, if he invited me to his house for lunch and I showed up there, the table would be covered with food. It would be, there would be 14 different types of appetizers alone sitting on that table. The, 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 the sense of hospitality, it's the only place in the world that I've had Southern hospitality given a run for its money. It, this idea that we would say, this, this is over the top, and we're seeing that in Abraham. We saw it with Jesus. We saw it with, with God in the showbread, at the showbread table in the tabernacle. This over-the-top, crazy opulence, right? Listen, it's the same thing here. He's generous. He says three seas uh, of fine flour. Not just normal flour, but the fine flour. You can imagine if you're grinding it by hand. It's hard to make fine flour. Three seas is one ephah. That help? No, I didn't think so. Um, a sia is about 6.5 quarts of flour. One sia, 6.5 quarts. So this is three sias of fine flour. So 19 and a half quarts. Any of you bread makers out there? Is that a lot of flour? So 19 and a half, so 20, about 20 quarts of flour, which probably makes in the area of 13 loaves of bread. And that's the idea here. And, and I, by the way, I've got a comment, and I, I probably ought to do the, do the Abraham like for the few of you who didn't get any donuts this morning. And I touched my head to the ground. Um, we used to be really good at predicting how many people were going to show up on Sunday morning. Today is a low attendance Sunday most years. Yeah, not so much. Um, and so some of you, I humbly apologize, some of you didn't get donuts today. That is not how that's supposed to work. But... Our 13 loaves ran out. There's a lot of donuts back there. We ate a lot of donuts today. Um, some of us need to go for a walk later, apparently. So <laughs> he brought a calf, the best meat and the most costly, better than water. He brought out milk and cheese. And this is after saying, just a little, just a little. We want to be inviting. We take the next step. We don't wait for the guests to take the step. We do it. We get out of our comfort zone. So we're going to practice. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> a little later than normal, but it is my privilege to get to welcome all of y'all to uh, worship this morning. Uh, by way of announcement, there's one thing I was asked to highlight, and that is for anybody who's involved in uh, leading a life group or in one of our adult ministry branches. Um, they are doing their training, kicking back off. There's only five sessions of it, and the first one kicks off tonight. And so, again, if that's you, just a reminder, that's tonight. Uh, if it is applicable to you and you haven't uh, already, already uh, seen that, then this is, this is for you. If you have any questions about it, you can reach out to Blake Arrington, uh, and he can get you all the details and uh, get you everything you need to know. We also want to mention that if it is your first time here, uh, if you're a guest with us, or maybe you've been coming for a while but never officially checked in, there is a welcome desk back over in the back corner. Um, we'd love for you to stop by. We'd love to put a gift in your hand to tell you that we are proud that you are here. But this is the time that we all get to continue in worship by 
jumping out of our seats, finding somebody we don't know, and telling them it's a privilege to worship with them. So have a seat. So we've got three. And by the way, much that looked great. It should look almost like people exploded. Like it's like, especially if you're a member, it means you head to the back. Third, you, you get out of those chairs. Um, I know some of you are very, you may score a perfect score on introvert on the Myers-Briggs. You still got to get out of those chairs. If you're a member, get out of the chair, go find someone. There's people on the other side of the room you've never met. You've been coming six years, so have they, you've never met each other. So get, get out and go, and literally, I had somebody between the services say that when she meets someone in public, and like, oh, I go to South Spring too, her first question is, which side of the room do you sit on? That was, um, what, what zip code are you in? So it's a, um, that's great. But also just to make sure, and again, not to give away anyone's secrets, but guests tend to gather in the back about third of the room. Do not make our guests greet one another. Get up, go find them and greet them and let them know, because I know we're all authentically glad you're here, but listen, we get that endorphin kick, that dopamine hit when we see a face we know, and especially in today's world, as we talked about on the podcast this week, um, that in today's world, we, we are even more isolated, so we're looking for faces we know that make us feel safe and comfortable, and we look for those, we get that hit, and we walk right past all the unsafe people we don't know yet. And hospitality is, by definition, loving, the most loving thing you can do are the things often that don't come naturally to you. And so when you can reach out and greet, that's, that's vital. And this, this is a, from, from Hebrews 13, verse 1 and 2, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware, like Sodom did, which is the continuation of the story we started a minute ago. Um, we don't want that to be us. We want to greet everybody as if they were God's messengers themselves. And the writer of Hebrews is pointing out, they may be. This is huge. And they certainly may be in our lives. This, so every friendship starts with a simple greeting. It starts that way. So consider, I, will, I do want to throw this to you so you'll know, we're always working to improve our sense of hospitality. We're always working that. And so if there's something in your mind that you would say, this is a caveat. When I invite somebody to church, I always, to South Spring, I always feel like I kind of have to say, hey, just, just to warn you, whatever, right? So I just, I just want to warn you, like, this is a thing you're going to run in. If, you, if there's something like that, that may, it may be absolutely good that we do it, and you're just warning them anyway, because you know they're coming from a different culture or something like that. That's fine. But if it's a barrier to hospitality in any way, we want to know. Um, also between services, I had somebody say, um, yeah, my, their example, so when they're inviting someone to our church, they always say, well, just so you'll know, the preacher wears jeans and t-shirts that, and I quote, haven't been ironed in a hundred years. That was the, <laughs> uh, but, but he's, uh, he said, but I tell them that's intentional. That's on purpose. So first I had him explain what iron means in that context. That's apparently it's a verb. Um, so but we want the most welcoming experience. Here's one of our mottos. We want you to have the most welcoming experience you've ever had in your life that you didn't have to pay for. Typically, if someone's being nice to you and they're welcoming to you, they want your money. And that's not the case here. That's not what it's all about. That is, we want you here because we believe you have eternal significance. There is a God who is desperately loves you. And who, who came and experienced life as a human, as we just celebrated, and as we'll celebrate in a few months and then died for us. He's that crazy about us, and we want to just have you get a tiny piece of that when you come and visit here. 
We want a warm and welcoming place, a place with less barriers. For me growing up, having to dress up was a barrier to church, a barrier to hospitality. And so that's part of why we let people dress what, what you're comfortable in within limits. So um, where would you like to invite people? Where people, where would you come? Where do you like to be? Where do you like to invite people? Where do you want to be? Listen, we hold doors and we serve donuts. I'm sorry. Again, never happens. We make coffee. We follow up. We take to lunch. And most vitally, last thing, we take care of each other's children. And this is a huge act of hospitality in today's world, especially that we take care. We do a good job of taking care of each other's children. And, and I'm, like we experienced, it doesn't matter how good everything else is. You know if you're mom and dad, if the experience of bringing your kids is not positive, you're not coming back. And that's, I, I, I totally agree with that. We did the same thing when we first came to Tyler. There is a gentleman here who I consider to this day to be one of the greatest week-to-week preachers I'd ever heard. Still think of him that way. He's just brilliant. But we went to his church, and at the end of the service... When we went to go get our child, uh, at that time Mark, little kid, out of the children's ministry area, there's like 25 kids his age and one teacher, and Ginger said, we're not going back. See, this is vital that we are intentional about the way we, we raise it. It's part of our other, the rest of our, of our identity as well is equipping the next generation. But so I want to get, let you know of a few opportunities. If you're a member and you're not already engaged, by the way, if you would say, I'm pretty sure I've let them know I'm available and they've not reached out to you, then they, you have not let that be known in the way that has to be known somehow. They, they will be reaching out to you. So if, it is, if you're interested in any of these, one, we especially need men to serve in preteen ministry. You may know some preteen boys. They don't always respond to female authority super well. It's nothing, that's just because, you know, they're preteen boys. And so they sometimes need some men in there to help with that. So if, if, that's, if that's you and a man who can lead in that, who's a member who would like to do that, we need to know. We need at least 12 other workers, leaders, teachers we need someone who likes to be on stage in front of kids and would be able to do a, a big group time. Like that requires a certain type of crazy, I mean giftedness, um, to, <laughs> to be able to get up in front of them. If that's you and, and you know it, listen, we'll help you get, get ready for that. It is truly hospitality when we welcome other people's children. Not just them, but their kids. It's why, it's why we aren't we aren't picky about, you know, kids acting like kids in the big room. We don't cut our eyes over and make, make glaring faces at moms whose kids are acting like kids. We're proud to have those kids here. We're proud to have families here. We're so grateful that people bring their children here and give us the opportunity to invest in them, and they invest in the future of, our, uh, of, the, of the church. Again, if you're not involved in some way in there, there are some needs. See, so this is serving. The third stage is about sacrifice and shepherding and discipleship which is what next week's sermon will be. We're all asking, where is my herd? Who is my pack? What is my flock? And instead of looking for such a place outside, I want to encourage you, especially those who are members, our job is to not be waiting for it to somehow hit us in the chest and drop in our lap, but to reach out and create that type of environment, to create that kind of church intentionally. So with that being our hope, our goal, and I believe our biblical mandate, by the way, I want to encourage you to be thinking, what is your role in that? So everybody stand with me, if you will. 
And we have a time of, of invitation every week. This is just a time for us to take just a couple of minutes and ponder to engage with what Christ is showing us. Maybe there's areas in our own families. Maybe you think like, my family's not very hospitable. How do we make our family more hospitable, more open, more welcome, where we can engage in people's lives? My neighborhood, how do we do that? How do we engage in these ways? And then, of course, what is my role in the, the church and this church in living that out? Um, so if you've got anything at all that you want to come to the Lord and pray about, you're welcome to come up here. If you want someone to pray with you, there'll be somebody in the corner or one of us up here to pray with you. We would love to do that. You can do that right where you are if you'd rather. That's totally fine. If you need to talk to somebody in this room, go find them. Do that. If you want someone uh, to tell you more about this Jesus who welcomes us, who invites everyone and everyone who comes is welcomed by him, that picture, if you need to have that conversation more, we'd love that. If you've already been through our welcome home process and you've already talked to Lance and others and you're ready to make this uh, your church home where we're trying to be hospitable, not always perfectly, we are dysfunctional after all, but if you want to be a part of that, we would love for you to come up and, uh, and have that conversation with us as well. We wrap up with these words. Matthew 25, the words of Jesus, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now what are some of the behaviors that are common among them? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me, and I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So let's go practice.